right, welcome to the Armchair Commanders podcast. My name is John. And I'm Jack. And this week we are discussing George Clooney's The Monuments Men. And this week we are joined by a special guest. We have JD from the History Underground joining us. Uh, if you'd like to say hi, JD. Hey, how's it going? It's uh, it's great to have you with us, and uh, we appreciate you uh, fitting us into your schedule. Oh, thank you. I, it's, I'm, I'm glad you guys invited me. So uh, right off the bat, I, I, I got to ask you, um, you know, our, our rule for the show is, is whenever we have a guest, um, we, we kick the choice of the film to them because, you know, they're coming on and spending their time with us. So, you know, I sent a, a pretty lengthy list to you <laughs> and I'm not upset by this at this movie choice by any stretch of the imagination. It's just of all the films that we had on the list, I I can't really say I know when this one would have ever really come up or have been selected by myself or Jack. Yeah. So what what about this? It. Yeah, Jack's been wanting to see it for a little bit, but you know, it was a it was a hefty list I sent you. So I'm just curious what uh, <laughs> what about this film stuck out to you for the choice? So. Uh, yeah, Monuments Men. Uh, I think it came out in 2014, if if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I honestly can't remember if I went and saw it in the theaters or not. Uh, my 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 memory's a, a little bit hazy on that. Uh, but but what I remember is it just got eviscerated by the critics. Uh, I think if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the, the Monuments Men has like a, a 32 or a 34%. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just it, well, we, it just got We were going to find that out later, so. Oh. <laughs> that's a, that's a part of our show is the Rotten Tomatoes score reveal and what we think of it. But oh, man. It's, okay, so I, like I, your, I, no, it I like your spirit. No, so, I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. going to come out eventually. So so I, I, I looked, you know, uh, you know, I watched watched the movie, and um, the, the the reason I picked it is, for some reason, usually when you know the critic scores comes out, I you know can kind of go by that. Um, and, and this is a movie that that I think just got an unnecessary beating um, from from the critics, and uh, yeah, I, I just thought it would be kind of an interesting one to to chat about. I hadn't watched it in a little while. So it was a good opportunity for me to, to kind of go back and revisit it as well. I think uh, when you sent that to me, I, I thought I'm like, this is this is an interesting choice because I did I did actually see this in theaters when it came out in 2013, 2014, wh- whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do remember actually going to see it and I haven't watched it since I saw it in theaters. And I didn't think it was a at least from my recollection from prior to rewatching it for this episode, I never really, I I didn't think it was a bad film at the time or I didn't remember it being a bad film. I also think I didn't remember it as being like anything particularly special either. Right. So I, I, I think I would agree that the, the 30% is kind of a, an unjust or a, a bit harsh of a, a reaction to this film. <laughs> I mean, I can I can remember movies that I went to and and hated, like movies that I really hated, kind of stick with me. Uh, I, I can remember 
the the feeling that I had when I I walked out of the theater after watching Titanic. And uh, the, the the greatest tragedy was, you know, that was, you know, seven or eight bucks that I was never going to get back. I, I, I hated that movie. Um, uh, I'm, well. I'm trying to think of some. That's uh, a hot take. I think there's a lot of people that disagree with that. Oh, yeah, there's I, I'm probably in the minority on that, uh, especially amongst all the girls who went and watched it like five or six times. Uh, they would definitely, um, you know, have, take issue with my assessment of Titanic. Uh, I think, uh, what was another one? Master and Commander. Um, I, I fell asleep in the movie theater uh, during that movie. Uh, so I don't know, maybe I just caught it on a bad night. But but with Monuments Men, I, uh, again, I'm like you, I didn't, I, I didn't walk out, you know, thinking that, you know, this is a movie that has just changed my life. Um, but but I didn't have the visceral reaction to it that, that many people did. No, that's, that's fair. And, uh, as somebody who loved Master Commander, I can also see why why someone could fall asleep during that film. Also, so <laughs> I, I went back and watched that one later, and it, it actually wasn't as bad. I, I think I just caught it on a bad night. I probably got enough sleep the night before, or something like that. Um, it also it also but, helps that if you if you know nothing about you know the Age of Sail, that is a it is a hard movie to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, Jack, you you hadn't seen the movie prior to the, the us bringing it up. No, I've never seen. I'd never seen Monuments Men before today. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm yeah. just kind of curious. What what was your gut reaction to it? Your your first mm. your first take on it? Didn't hate it. <laughs> it was weird that it's it was common more theme. comedy. Yeah, it was it was weird seeing all this comedy and what was a what was by its nature a war movie. But mm. <laughs> I I will say the you know obviously they got um you know they got John Goodman and Bill Murray in it. Matt so, Damon. Yep, Matt Damon Sorry, too. I have to. <laughs> Good old Team America reference. Can't pass it up. Yep, it's been a running <laughs> joke throughout our entire podcast so far. It's our first Matt Damon film, though. Yeah, special occasion. It is. But uh, with this, you know, you have two pretty big, you know, comedic names in the movie. And uh, I one thing I kind of found interesting is despite the fact that you have Bill Murray and John Goodman in this film, is that there are scenes that you very obviously see or there are lines that are given that you know are meant to be jokes and you know you're supposed to laugh at them but they really kind of fall flat Mm -hmm. like there's a ton of ton of times where you're like john goodman says something that's supposed to be funny and i'm like huh (laughs) (laughs) it's like the like the the first like you know they're doing the the training scene and i love the fact that they got john goodman to run an obstacle course for this movie just i could not imagine getting you know at this time he would have been like 65 or something but like 65 still 300 plus pounds john goodman you know crawling underneath barbed wire like that must have been a hard sell to him but <laughs> so but so yeah that scene that scene that you're talking about, uh, I don't know, maybe for people who haven't seen the movie, 
the, the context of, of the whole film is that it's the middle of World War II and, uh, you know, Europe's greatest, you know, art treasures are, are being threatened. And it's all based on a true story. So mm-hmm. uh, there's this, in, in reality, the, the movie only focuses on like six or seven individuals. In reality, there was about 345 to 350 different people from different countries who were, were tasked with going to Europe and uh, securing and protecting these pieces of art, some of which had been stolen and, and uh, some of which were in need of protection. There, I don't know, we can go off on a tangent and talk about a lot of different things with this. Uh, but, but the scene that you're talking about in particular, I, I really liked that scene uh, where, where they take these, these middle-aged guys, which in reality, they were you know, middle-aged men um, in their 40s or, or 50s or whatever, and, and they have to go through this basic training and uh, where you have John Goodman going under this barbed wire and he's kind of just doing it, you know, uh, n- not 100%. Um, and then, you know, some of the other guys come up and, and he stands up and, and just talks and, you know, is kind of just shooting the bull with them. And I, I liked that scene because the stage in life that I'm at right now, there, there's a reason that the military recruits young guys. Uh, you, you, can get, you can get an 18, 19, 20-year-old guy to, to do things that a man in his forties be like, no, nah, I ain't doing that. <laughs> you know, he, he's, yeah. he, I don't have to do that and I'm not going to do that. Um, and so, so I, I liked that kind of uh, nonchalant attitude in, in that scene. I, uh, I definitely feel that because um, in my, my regular life, I'm a first responder and I've, I've been doing that uh, for a pretty significant amount of time now. And you know, there's a lot of different places that take in the first responder world that takes on the paramilitary style of training where it's like, mm-hmm. we're going to make you do pushups and yell at you and, you know, make you pay for simple mistakes for, you know, attention to detail and all that stuff. And like, you know, it's like you said, when you're a young guy, it, like it hits you hard and you, you take <laughs> it seriously and, you know, it leaves an impact on you. And like, I'm, I'm not an old guy by any stretch of the imagination at this point in my life, or at least I don't think I am. Yeah. You know, I'm only 28 about to be 29, but okay. even, even only being a few years removed from that, I, I look back on that and I'm like, God, that's so stupid. I would never do that again. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, I'm, I'm 43 right now. And, um, you know, if there if there was some situation where I don't know, maybe there's a machine gun nest that has to be taken out, and you tell some young twenty year old guy, "Hey, we need you to, you know, charge this machine gun nest or do this, that, or the other." Yeah, maybe he'll you know go after it. Uh, you ask me to do that, I'd be like, "Nah, eh, let's think about this." <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> um, yeah. So so anyway, that that element of it, I I found uh, you know pretty entertaining. I, I, I will say the thing about John Goodman, though, is that part that you were talking about, that was the first time I paused the movie because every now and again, I'll be watching these films and something just sticks out to me and I'll be like, okay, I have to fact check this or I have to just, you know, I, I have to see how close to reality this is. And in my brain, when I saw John Goodman doing this obstacle course, I'm like, there is no way that 65 year old, 300 pound John Goodman is a, 
like a realistic recruit for you know the united states army and when i looked it up it's actually not that far off from the truth the oldest member of the monuments men was 66 oh i didn't know that yeah yeah and at that yeah, point that... it's it's take what you can get yeah it John... was it was so when i when i read that i'm like Great. Now I'm going to be pausing this movie every five minutes to to fact check something that I think is going to be an obvious answer because I'm like, how could I'm wrong about this? And I was like, this this can't be true. And it turned out to be so. So I was like, God, this is my watching of it took a while because yeah, I, I think, kept pausing. Yeah. John Goodman, uh, his character in the movie, I think his name is Walter Garfield. So all of this is based on real people. Uh, there, there was a book by Robert Edsel uh, called uh, The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History uh, that, that this movie was based off of. So, so they took the real people from World War II that, were, that participated in this and um, basically built the story around them. So, so everybody that you see, uh, whether it's Matt Damon's character or G George Clooney's character or uh, Bill Murray or John Goodman, they're, they're all based on, on real people. Uh, John Goodman's character was based on a guy named Walter Hancock, and I, I think he was, I think he was in his early forties, uh, if I remember right, when when he you know was was over in Europe. Um, but he was a, a sculptor, and a, another thing that you know I wanted uh, to you know a reason why I picked Monuments Men is there's a lot of crossover some of the places that I've been on the channel and uh, some of the places with the Monuments Men, but he actually designed the World War I monument in uh, St. Louis, which was one of the, the first videos that, that I did on the channel. Uh, but yeah, all of these people were, were based on, on real-life figures, which, which is interesting to me. Now, the degree to which they get it right, I mean, they, they take a lot of artistic liberties <laughs> with, with <laughs> this movie. Uh, it's I don't know if that was purposeful, but that was a good play on words for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but but each each artistic liberty is uh, it, you you can follow it uh, the thread back to uh, you know something that that actually happened in in real life. I uh, I, I did appreciate that. Like there there was a lot of there's a lot of veins of truth in this movie, but it was mm -hmm. definitely a, you know how a lot of movies will start off with based on a true story or what have you. I, I, I always get a little irked by those opening statements because, and granted yeah. it's pedantic with a one or two word change in what uh, you decide to describe. Mm -hmm. But I think this movie definitely fits the mold of, inspired by true <laughs> stories as opposed yeah. to based on true events yeah um but you know that's it's a tiny little thing that you know probably isn't that big of a deal to most people right right um yeah so yeah i i think that's a good way to put it that that it's 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 inspired uh by uh true events like uh kate blanchett's character uh in in the movie uh, they give her the name Claire Simone, uh, but she was based on a figure named uh, Rose. I think you pronounce her name Valand. I'm really terrible at French, um, 
Well, that's that's better than any attempt I could ever come up with. So. <laughs> yeah, props given. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she was she was I mean a real life art historian at um, this uh, museum in in Paris and and did some incredible work. Now, where where the movie kind of goes sideways is where they try and introduce a little bit of a romantic tension between her and uh, Matt Damon's character. Um, that that never happened, uh, but but she did some some incredible work um, at the the museum that that she was working at, uh, and the, the name escapes me right now. Um, the Jeu de Palm, that's the name of it. Ah. Uh, she, she yeah, she was working at the the Jeu de Palm, which served as a kind of like a, a sorting house for all of this plundered art that that the Nazis had during World War II. Um, and uh, like at the very beginning of the movie, they show, um, Hermann Goering, who was, uh, like the, the biggest art thief in the third Reich, um, you know, visiting there, he, he had made, I think over 20 visits to the, the Jus yep. de Palme and, uh, was, was picking out works of art for himself. And then everything else, uh, was going to go to the, uh, the Führer museum, uh, in Linz, Austria, uh, which was going to be like this, uh, the the biggest art museum in um, yeah because because didn't hitler he as a part of his you know he wanted to have a giant he basically wanted a napoleon style mausoleum type deal mm -hmm. but also wanted it to be the the world's largest art museum at the same time because he wanted to you know you know stick his tongue out at the the art school who that rejected him <laughs> Have you ever seen any of Hitler's art? Yeah, I have. It's it's quite it's it's, it's genuinely good. I mean, it's not bad. It's, it's better than anything I could do. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I yeah. I, I mean, I, for myself, that is. I'm not an artist <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't I. like he's he's no Rembrandt, obviously. But I, as an like the if you Google Adolf Hitler art, it's. Oz, it's pretty decent yeah, it's, or it, it's, it's good it's, enough for the time with the contemporaries of the time like yeah. it's stuff i would hang in my bathroom but not necessarily in my living room <laughs> but <laughs> i remember hearing this story about how they unearthed one of his um fucking lost paintings and they asked a critic without telling him who it was written by or how who it was drawn drawn by what he thought mm -hmm. and he said it's a remarkably beautiful painting but his attention to detail and humanity lacks as if he's suffering from a distinct lack of empathy oh interesting i've never I, heard uh, that i remember in college i took a class it was called mass murderers and serial killers um which uh sounds like a morbid a, class <laughs> it was it was a very morbid class but i feel very lucky because i feel like that's not a class that is offered at many universities um but with a title like that you you almost have to take it because yeah you're i you would. know there's a reason why investigative discovery is its own channel and there's a reason why netflix has 40 billion you know true crime documentaries mm -hmm. um but on the first day of the class that's actually uh it was kind of the interesting thing was 
uh, our teacher handed us a packet and it was a psychological profile, no name to it, just here are the psychological elements to this person. And one of the things it listed was this person enjoys painting. And, oh. uh, <laughs> you know, we have this hmm. packet of, you know, here are the psychological indicators of this person. And then uh, after we read the packet, we we're like, okay, take a guess as to what this person's crime is or was, um, you know, things that may have impacted this, all, all that kind of stuff, you know, just gauging our ability to, to guess with given information and the, the psychological packet we were given was for Adolf Hitler. And mm-hmm. they're like, it's like who here had the, you know, worst mass murderer in all of human history for their answer. And like, nobody rose their, raised their hand. We're like, Oh, we're bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the painting thing would have given it away at least on some level. You know, John Wayne Gacy enjoyed painting, too. And I was going to bring that up. Like, it's shocking to me how normal or outwardly normal some of the most of these people were. Like, John Wayne Gacy held block parties and sponsored people. And, like, was he was a prominent member in the uh, some it was, it was it was an organization like the Shriners, but I can't remember what it was called something like, like like an elks club or odd fellows or something something like that and like he would entertain children and like take pictures of people's kids he got a picture with the first lady at the time after going through multiple security checkpoints through the secret service and like if you were to plop hit if i knew nothing about hitler and you were to plop his history and mental profile in front of me i probably wouldn't think anything of it you know war hero injured during his service likes painting doesn't drink doesn't like eating meat i would never guess yeah so the real question is 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 there some if we were to place bets on all of the classical artists of like the Renaissance, who do you think was the the, the serial killer? killer. <laughs> yeah, do you think it was Da Vinci, da Vinci. or uh, Michelangelo? <laughs> da Vinci. Oh man, he had to have he, gotten those anatomical drawings from somewhere. Yeah, he was he was into dissection, so I'm sure there's there's got to be a little bit of overlap, but slight, slightly off topic there. <laughs> Um, I will say, you know, kind of going back to the, the comedy falling flat was, you know, with this being an inspired by more Mm -hmm. or less story, I don't know if you guys felt this way, but during certain action sequences, I'm like, this is kind of unnecessary. Like the scene where Kate Blanchett's, uh, character rides her bicycle to the train station and sees the one Nazi guy hop on the train. And she's like, I know he's got the paintings. And he just like looks Uh-oh. back and, and starts like, shooting at her with his pistol. Wait. I'm like, this is completely <laughs> unnecessary. Like, like he you... lazily pops off his entire clip. Notice that he didn't hit her. And he's like, and eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, you're a, you're a high ranking Nazi official. You don't have to care one bit about her opinion. Like, why are you like, it's just, it seemed like drama for the sake of drama. Yes. Yeah, and I think I think unfortunately they they insert that in a lot of different places in the movie 
and, and like you said, it, it, it falls flat. Uh, now, now again, I, I don't have the, uh, the visceral hatred of the movie like many of the, the critics did. Um, but at, at the same time, there, there's probably, um, it, it's a missed opportunity as well. Um, you know, there, yeah, there are just elements that, that just didn't work um, in the movie. But it's, it's one that, that I can put on and, you know, watch with my kids. Um, you know, it, it, I'm not going to rank it as the, you know, one of my top 10 movies uh, of all time. Um, but it, it tells a, a story that most people were probably unaware of prior to the movie coming out. Absolutely. I, and I think that's also one of the things like this movie, not only does a great job of bringing up a story that is barely touched on, if at all, I think the only time we really get the fact that art theft was a thing in the war brought up at all is in, um, in Holocaust movies like defiance or mm -hmm. Schindler's list we see it there because obviously that is a part of the story of the Jewish people, um, you know, being deported to camps, uh, you know, having all their possessions rounded up and stuff like that. We get it there, but I think that is one of the unfortunate things about World War II films or just World War II as a subject is that even though the Holocaust is intimately intertwined with the story of world war ii i think a lot of times as historians or just as people the general public we often hold them in kind of like two different two different places in our brain mm -hmm. where we acknowledge that the holocaust exists at the same time as world war ii and within it but when we think about the landings of normandy we're not thinking at the exact same time that you know guys are storming the beaches there are you know, thousands of people dying every single day in these concentration camps. There, it's it's a hard thing to keep intertwined together. Yeah, that, that's one of the the unfortunate things with um, you know the the study of, of World War II history, or, or one of the things that you can kind of slip into is that people tend to silo the history. Uh, so I, I know some people who just focus solely on uh you know the the european theater uh and completely ignore the fact that i mean there's another war that's going on in in the pacific uh at this time and, and yeah while you know the the allies are coming ashore um you know at normandy there's fighting that's going on down in italy uh there are the the camps the the you know slaughter in the camps is really ramping up uh at that time um, so yeah, I, I, I think, uh, the more that, that we can kind of give context and, and intertwine those things instead of keeping them siloed, I, I think we, um, are, are better served by, by doing that. And, and the movie, it, it touches on, on some of those things, it, it kind of bringing, um, that, that intertwined nature, uh, you know, into the film. Uh, there, there's one scene where they, they go to the home of one of these, um, I think it was an SS guy, but one of these um, 
uh, one of these Nazis and he, he's in plain clothes and he's there with his family and he's got this art that's up on the wall. Yeah. And, and they ask him, have you ever heard of the Rothschilds? Um, and he's like, Oh no, I've, I've never heard of them. Well, that, that was one of the, the largest uh, art collectors in, in Europe at the time. He was a you know Jewish family. Uh, and then where, when they're in the mine in Merkers, uh, I believe it's Matt Damon's character. Um, picks up something and uh, makes mention of the fact that it's it's gold teeth, which is, you know, uh, rooted in reality. In, mm-hmm. in the Merkers' mind, it wasn't just um, it wasn't just art that they had in there, um, but like the Reich's treasury had moved all of their gold there, um, and all of this looted. Um, all these looted possessions from Jewish individuals was there. And then also, yeah, gold teeth that had been extracted from, from these Jewish individuals. I will say that scene you're talking about, I'm pretty sure it wasn't intended to be taken this way, but the scene where they're talking to the guy who's pretending to not be a Nazi with mm-hmm. all of his stolen art on the walls, that yeah. is one scene that I did have a, like a genuine, I genuinely laughed and had like a, I got, this yeah. is a funny moment. Uh, Cause you know, at the end of that scene, the way they, they close it out is one of the monuments men looks over to the kids who are playing in the living room and he just like glances over to them and he nonchalantly says, Heil Hitler. And both yeah. the kids immediately drop like snap. They drop what they're doing. They snap too. And they both yell Heil Hitler. And they're like, like that's not meant to be a funny scene, but it is because of how clever they were able to wrap up that particular moment in this movie. Yeah, and it's like, haha, we got you, you know. And so, yeah, there's, there's that awkward moment beforehand where that really old dude was just like looking at the paintings. It's like, wow, these are really good. And the guy was like, ah, no, they're just copies. Yeah, and, and then he's like you do realize he signed the back of these paintings right and i just saw them and then he like has that coy laugh then he looks over and says john goodman has a gun on the table (laughs) was it john goodman or was it bill murray in that scene yeah bill murray it was bill murray that had the gun on the table and then the next scene they're driving off with the dude in tow with all the paintings in the back (laughs) so i we we've mentioned the the interjection of humor into this movie uh, a few different times now and, and i think that was one thing that was kind of off-putting to a lot of people is you know they, they took this war movie and it almost turns into like an oceans 11 type movie or, yes. or a buddy comedy well, literally because thing. we have two of oceans we, 11 yeah. Here. <laughs> yeah we have we have mr ocean himself actually yes yeah, yeah he was um, the one that put on this art heist <laughs> um to, to me, what it feels like. Now, I, I can't speak for George Clooney or the producers or anything like that, so I, I, I have not read anything that would support this. What the movie feels like is that it's trying to do a little bit of a throwback to some of those movies like in the, in the 40s and 50s, maybe into the 60s, um, almost like a Casablanca type thing. Where if you watch Casablanca, I mean that's that's a war movie that was produced during the war, uh, but but there's all these little one-liners and uh, little interjections of humor and quips and and things like that. Um, I don't know, may, maybe I'm I'm off on that, but but that's what the movie felt like to me it, that it, it was trying to, you know, 
um, have a, have a nostalgic feel to it. I, I can definitely see that. The thing that frustrated me about it, though, is, you know, we talked about the moments that did fall flat, but then we have, this is a scene where it, it feels real. Like, this is, this is a scene that felt genuine, and the end result was not meant to get a laugh, but it, it did. And it shows that you can have humorous moments in serious situations if presented, you know, it like war is terrible, but it human beings are, you know, remarkable in the fact that we can find humor in even the most terrible of things. Mm-hmm. And it's, yep. it just goes to show that they could have had those humorous moments without it being deadpan you know yeah but the other part of this that uh you know talking about the other part that you brought up which was the the gold teeth scene where you know matt damon you know basically he dumps his hand into this giant barrel and like it looks kind of like as if he's um like sifting through sand almost but Mm -hmm. it's it's gold instead yeah, once you get a we, good look at it, it's, hmm. this is it is a moment that you know obviously art theft was a huge part of World War II, and art theft was a huge part of Holocaust also, mm-hmm. and this movie never shies away from talking about the holocaust they you know it's 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 at the forefront of the story that this is going on and it's part of it but i think something a way that they could have reframed that scene or made that scene more powerful is if we actually saw a camp because when i saw that scene i could tell this is a scene that they have purposely shot and they have put in this movie that is supposed to make us have a strong emotion it is most it is supposed to remind us that you know for every one of these tiny little you know flecks of gold is a human being that isn't here anymore um and this movie it it doesn't have any problem interjecting our characters in literally every other part of the european theater because we see them land on the beaches of normandy you know, you have a pair that goes to like Belgium. You have a pair. We even have a scene where they're spending Christmas in Bastogne. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. this movie, this movie has already proven the fact that it, it doesn't care about injecting our characters into any given place as long as it helps whatever story they're putting. I think something that would have made this infinitely more powerful is if we had a scene where the monuments men were there when a camp was found and we see on the screen, we actually see them understand the weight of what is happening here because prior to the camps being found, obviously the, you know, your average sold, like your average soldier and officers and all that stuff, they know that a lot of people and especially the Jewish people have been persecuted in Europe up to this point. But there's a lot of guys who don't know how absolutely awful it is until the camps are actually getting found. And, you know, there's a whole 
that's the whole reason why when the camps were found, Eisenhower made it in order that if you're in any amount of proximity to one of these camps, you will go see it because he didn't want anybody to say this wasn't a thing or they didn't want anybody to not understand what was going on. Um, so I feel like if we had a scene where the monuments men were there when a camp was found and then we followed it up with the scene of they're in a cave and they find one of these barrels and then they have the, these are, these are fillings from, for people's teeth. I think that would have skyrocketed the, the impact of that, that moment in the movie. Yeah. I, I'd be curious to know if any of the, I mean, again, there's, there were 345, 350 of these, of these people who, who served, um, you know, as the, the monuments men, I, I'd be curious to know if any of them ever, um, visited any of the camps as they were moving through. I mean, cause obviously these, these aren't frontline guys, but as you mentioned, um, they, they did have soldiers come in and, you know, bear witness to, to what had happened. Uh, at, at these camps, um, yeah. So yeah, that's 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 interesting to me. I, I, they they would have had to have really um, been strategic about how they tackled that in the movie to make it look like it's not you know shoehorned in there. Oh, um, abso- absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so um, the, the, but but yeah, if if they could have worked it, that'd be interesting. I think it was a missed opportunity. Is yeah. is my thing. Um, yeah. But you know. You mentioned, you know, this is a this is a movie that you can sit down and, you know, you can watch it with your kids. You can watch it with your family. Right. I would say, you know, we we've the last couple of reviews we've done. One of my biggest complaints has been that when they made the movie, they shot for not an appropriate rating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, last week we did Gettysburg, and that got rated PG, and I was like. We can't have one of one of the most significant battles in the American Civil War as a PG film. I'm sorry, it's it's not going to it yeah. doesn't really do it justice. The same way that um, when we reviewed the Alamo, it was a PG-13 movie. And I'm like, if this was a rated R film, I think 2004's Alamo would have been, you know, just that would have would have really hit the mark. Yeah, this is one of those few times that I think a the film was rated correctly. Like this was not meant to be a like this topic at least. It was not meant to be a shoot 'em up action packed film. Right. Um, it, it it its objective was not to. There there are the horrors of war in this movie, but it's not the primary focus of it. The right. the primary focus of it is we you know the allies are trying to preserve this part of human heritage so in that sense this film being a pg-13 film i'm totally cool with that because the the primary subject matter of it is the recovery of this stolen art and the set piece is world war ii as opposed to you know these other films are this is a story about this battle or this is a story about this war so I will say this is the one time I'm I'm not going to be mad about a horror movie being a PG-13 film. Yeah, and I'm with you there. I uh, you, you mentioned Gettysburg uh, as an example, uh, which I, th- I think that was originally supposed to 
Well, I, I better not say that. I, I was getting ready to say, I think it was supposed to be a made-for-TV movie, and then they ended up making it bigger, but I, I could be wrong about that. But yeah, it, the the bottom line is, it, it is uh, far too far too sanitized. Uh, but and so so in general, whether it's Civil War, World War One, World War Two, you know, I I, I prefer a, a more dark, gritty version uh, of the depiction of the events. I that that would not have worked for this movie uh, because that's that's not the the story that they were telling. Um, and, and and I like that again. I, I like that it's a movie uh, a that I can watch with my family. And then, you know, can have some conversations about World War II and, and different things like that. Um, and and also that it it tells um, a, a story that, that most people wouldn't know. Here, here's one thing uh, about the movie that that I kind of like, and maybe I'm, I'm getting into too deep a thought here, uh, is, is I think that it, it begs the question of what our values are in a time of war. So, so if you look at the Abbey at Monte Cassino, so, you know, this is this, this Abbey that has its roots all the way back in like the, the five hundreds. Um, and the long story short, the allies suspect that the, the Germans are using it for artillery observation. Um, the, there were some monks there that said, no, there's nobody here. There were just civilians in there and some, some monks. Um, but they still believe that, that the Germans were utilizing this place. So I think February 15th, 1944, uh, they send in B-17s and B-25s and, and bomb this historic structure and, and reduce it to, to rubble. Um, and, and, I mean, it's been rebuilt, but essentially we lost it. Um, be, because of that. So it, it makes me think, um, you know, let's say this is an old church that was built in the 1500s. And you know that there's a German artillery observer in the bell tower. Um, what, what do you do? Like, what decision do you make there? Do, do you destroy this historic structure um, in order to take out the artillery observer? Or do you, do you preserve it? Uh, so that, that must have been a difficult question for these guys as, as they were kind of moving through Europe. Um, you know, what do we destroy and what, what do we save, um, you know, given the situation? I believe, yep. uh, I believe what Eisenhower, because it was a director from Eisenhower, his, what it got boiled down to was necessity versus convenience. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Monte Cassino. That was like... That was the first major test of the necessity convenience line mm -hmm. because it was right before that battle he came out with this directive and it's it's why it's because of this directive that monte casino ended up being one of the you know one of the most bloody battles of the italian campaign uh, is because when he came out with this directive there was a lot of officers who were like we don't know who's going to be the first one to test the line on this directive and uh it ended up getting a lot of a lot of casualties because of it but you know there was that there was that momentary hesitation that they had about okay let's not destroy it but um you know it's it's the question they pose at the beginning of this film is 
is any one piece of art worth a human life? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, that I, I don't mean to sound callous when I say this, but that, that's a difficult question. It is. Um, think, I mean, one, one of the pieces that was at risk um, and they, they ended up building like sandbags around it and, and everything like that and preserved it was uh, The Last Supper. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if it's between The Last Supper and some guy from Cleveland, I, I mean, <laughs> what, what do you do? Um, you Depends. Know, I, Is the guy from Cleveland an asshole or? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, he, he, so, I mean, being just real, he, he's, he means somebody, something to somebody. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. He, he's, it's... he's a it's a human life that has value and worth and was created in the image of God. Is that life more important than this timeless piece of art? Um, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not falling on either side of the fence here. I, I think it's just a, a an interesting um, moral dilemma to have to you know put yourself in the shoes of those guys. Absolutely. I mean, war is, it's a series of decisions and sacrifice and it's what sacrifices are and are not acceptable to you. Yeah. And if I was a sergeant in world war two and there's a sniper in the bell tower and some guy told me I couldn't destroy it and potentially save my men, I'd tell him to go fuck himself. But yeah, it's, in in that uh, moment yeah absolutely but then you also have somebody who's on the flip side of the coin take like you you take somebody who's like a part of the monuments men who they've devote you know george clooney's character uh that he plays uh was a real individual i forgot the name of him but um he spent his entire life devoted to art restoration actually at the beginning of the war one of the first things he did was he came out with pamphlets and distributed them to pretty much every museum that he could in the united states and in england and it was a here's the proper way to pack your art so it doesn't get you know destroyed in bombings basically yeah um you know to him stout is his name yeah that you know to a person like him the the obverse is true where it's like you know for his perspective this piece of art is more than oil and canvas it is you know it is quite literally the essence of you know a particular group's heritage or their history Mm -hmm. or you know it's it's a more kind of more of a meta view of it if you will but you know Every, everybody has a different opinion and, you know, they're, they're tough choices to be made. Um, you know, for my part, I think something to take into consideration is like, I do appreciate art. Um, I'm not an art snob or an art nerd by any means, but I, I do appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first time I ever had one of these moments is I went to New York uh, two years ago, I think. I went there for the... I, I got to participate in the the 20th anniversary uh, event for the 9-11 attacks in the city. Mm. Um, and while we were in New York, uh, obviously, you know, aside from going to the World Trade Center and doing that stuff, um, you know, hit up 
all the other attractions the the city has to offer because it's the first time i'd been to new york and one of the places we went to was the the moma or the museum of modern art and in the moma they have van gogh's starry night which is arguably is probably one of the top 10 most recognizable paintings in human history um even somebody who knows nothing about art if you were to say the name of that painting they would know what you're talking about um and you know this is a painting that i had seen images of all the time like you know my next door neighbor in college had a poster of it in their dorm like it it's that popular yeah and i thought it was i thought it was an interesting painting i i liked it but also i didn't really think anything of it i didn't i wasn't like oh my god this is a masterpiece but <laughs> going to this museum and actually seeing starry night in person drastically changed how i felt in view that particular work of art because when you actually get to see the real thing in person you i i, I don't want it to sound all hippy dippy but you you get mm -hmm. to you more or less you feel it you you yeah. get its actual impact and you you you're more likely to get its importance once you've actually experienced it so i can definitely see you know it, it just goes to the you know it's it's a difficult choice balancing what we're willing to sacrifice right right well and we're i mean maybe maybe kind of coming full circle on this you know uh, it it uh we're, we're indebted to these you know 345 350 men and women who uh uh played their part and and served and uh fulfilled a role that that you wouldn't think of uh, and th there are monuments men who still exist today uh, in in the military um, in the in the war in Iraq. Um, you know there there was um, a, it's kind of lesser known, just kind of like you know monuments men in World War II were lesser known. Um, but but there there was uh, a, a conscious effort to you know be looking at these historic works. Uh, in Iraq, as you know, the uh, coalition forces were were moving through. Um, so anyway, yeah, that, that that's kind of yeah, that's kind of why uh, I, I like the movie. Uh, you know, it's just I, I couldn't imagine being the guy who's trying to tell some tank commander, no, you can't destroy that. That wall's been there since the time of Babylon, and yes, yeah. they're like, and yeah, <laughs> yep. Um, which again, you're you're dealing with uh, 18, 19, and twenty year old guys <laughs> in in that case, uh, who would maybe later in life, maybe have a little bit different perspective. Uh, but yeah, ag again, difficult choices, uh, and and these people did a did a great work, and um, I'm thankful that even though it, it, it kind of flopped and and got eviscerated by the critics, I, I'm I'm glad that the movie exists. Me too. I it serves as, well. as a nice reminder. And again, you know, I brought this up in a previous pot in a previous episode we did that Bill Murray was uh, a character in. Last time we had Bill Murray in a movie that we reviewed was the greatest beer run ever, and he was a bartender in that movie. Um, but every time I see Bill Murray in a movie, it always makes me think. 
I, I don't know if you're familiar. I the last time I brought it up in an episode, his the way he accepts film roles is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, but I've since done more research on it. And apparently, the way he accepts film roles is he doesn't have an agent or anybody that you go through. Um, he has a one eight hundred number. And the 1-800 number goes directly to a voicemail, which he may or may not check. And the frequency at which he checks is who knows. And essentially, you have to give a pitch of your movie to this voicemail. So (laughs) you have a minute or two minutes to describe your film. He then listens to the voicemail or doesn't. Who knows? And if he likes the idea for the film, he will then give you like a fax or an email or whatever to send the script to and the script can't be more than like 90 pages because if it's more than 90 pages he won't read it (laughs) and and uh, there's other factors in it too but apparently he has like a checklist of things that the script has to accomplish for him to accept it um but then after after you've met all of these check marks, he's gotten to a point in his life where he doesn't really care about money. Yeah. So you have to bribe him with some sort of fun <laughs> experience or so- something that tickles his fancy. So like, I think it, there, there was some sort of aquatic movie. It, it might've been the Steve's, Steve's Asau life aquatic. I, I can't remember. Anyways, there was a movie that involved a submarine and the producers of that film promised him, you can live on this submarine for a week. And he's like, okay. <laughs> I, I so, really hope that those aren't urban legends and that those are, are real stories uh, that actually happened because that, that would be awesome. <laughs> at the very least, the, the 1-800 number is a true thing. At, oh, after awesome. that point, uh, <laughs> I'm sure that, you know, there's some variations in legend to it, but... You know, every time we get a movie with Bill Murray now, I I do the mental gymnastics of what was going through his mind when this came across, like when he heard the pitch and then he's like, yeah, sure, send me the script. And he read, I'm going to be in a movie about recovering stolen art that he was like, yep, <laughs> that is for me. Oh, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> Oh, he actually got to keep some of the Nazi artwork they actually recovered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wait, he drives to, a hard I, bargain. He gets to keep one of the burnt Picassos. <laughs> and yeah, while, before we started this, I was actually looking up the artwork we lost in World War II, whether it was intentionally destroyed or just no one's seen it since and we don't oh, know where significant. it went off to. Uh, Joseph Abrant, um, a hunting trip, bunch of people on wagons waving guns about towards the end of the war. The cultural heritage stored in vegetables. It was transferred to local monasteries and palaces. Their future fate remains unknown. Um, destroyed or stolen by German soldiers. Taken. No idea where it is making efforts to find it since 2004. And I was just wondering how many of these pieces are just in some random German guy's attic since the war that he's inherited from his grandfather. 
I'm glad you asked. I actually, in in looking up stuff for this film, there was one story I came across, and I hope you guys don't mind a tangent, but <laughs> this is a ridiculous story. Um, so have either of you heard of the Nemi ships? The what? No. The Nemi ships. So no in, it- in Italy, there is a place called Lake Nemi. Hence, Nemi ships. So, during the time of the Roman Empire, when Caligula was the emperor, he commissioned for, essentially they were palaces, but they were these two massive, and I mean giant ships, especially by ancient standards. These are huge ships. Uh, He commissioned two of these giant ships that were supposed to be floating palaces on Lake Nemi. And, um, you know, obviously Caligula did not remain in power all that long. And after he was deposed, uh, his ships got sent to the bottom of the lake. Um, And years, 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 you know, a long time after the fact, it was actually... These ships were always known to have been there. And in fact, it was a common practice for local fishermen to like send a rope with a hook on the end of it, like overboard and just like yank up planks of the ship and sell them to tourists. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, wait, I think I've heard the story, but continue. Um, so when Mussolini came to power, uh, you know, I don't want to say great minds. What's the birds of a feather? There we go. That's a there we go. Better. <laughs> you didn't get didn't canceled want... today. I didn't want to say great minds think alike. Birds of a feather. <laughs> anyway, Mussolini also really big into not necessarily the Aryan idea of supremacy, but was very big on the like the cultural history of Italy, being like, look how much we've contributed to the world, or like look how advanced we were. Um, he funded probably one of the most impressive archaeological recoveries of the 20th century where he got uh archaeologists engineers all this stuff he essentially cut a a tunnel through a mountain so he could drain this giant lake like completely dry and then uh excavated the nemi ships right you know didn't raise them up you know because obviously the lake wasn't a lake anymore but recovered these ships and then moved them into these this giant facility that was supposed to be a museum and it was supposed to be a like look at our our ancient ancestors magnificent you know technological achievements and you can look it up that they are very impressive ships and I'm surprised that they were even able to keep them intact as much as they did. Well, World War II happened. And as with many things in World War II, uh, the Nemi ships were one of the things that was, was lost and was actually, you know, part of the reason why the monuments men became a thing because there's also an incident in north africa where the british destroyed some ancient ruins that really did a number on their pr manager 
Yeah, I think um, it was in Libya. <laughs> yeah, they. So that happened, and then uh, it's debated, but I'm I'm going to go. It's a pretty solid chance that the Allies were the ones that destroyed the Nemi ships. Anyways, Nemi ships are destroyed to the point that all that are left are fragments. And um, to this day, the Italians still have a museum where they they made replicas of the, they're, they're like half scale or three quarter scale, but they made replicas of not even the ships themselves. They made replicas of the, the shipwreck. So it's like, look what we used to have. Um, but <laughs> there is a, the reason I bring this up is because I, I actually remember reading this in college. There was an incident in 2017 where a person in new york city had bought one of the fragments of the nemi ships in an illicit manner not a like oh i you know this this was a war trophy passed down to me no like <laughs> it, it was it was like a black market auction type situation um and they were using it as a coffee table yep, i did hear about this wow and it just it just goes to show like we think about this event as being so long ago and you know the you know these things that we consider to be lost there a lot of these things that we consider to be lost are out there floating in the ether it's like jack said it's in some dude's grandfather's attic it's some rich person's coffee table it's yeah it it's truly astounding all of these cultural heritage items that we have lost that could be made available again if you know just some people would do the right thing yeah and i'm glad you mentioned that because one of the other 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 things that i like is just researching lost media and lost pieces of art that's why i'm kind of that's why i was looking forward to this and why I wanted to see that I uh, wanted to do this in the first place. And I encourage you both to check out the lost media wiki. If you haven't already, there's some good stuff. Um, yeah. One of the things I learned is that you, you guys know the iconic Washington crossing, crossing the Delaware painting, right? Yeah. 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 I'm actually uh before you continue with that side note, that's my my next tattoo is I'm I'm getting Washington crossing the Delaware on my forearm. So continue. But anyway, apparently the one we have in Washington is just a copy. The real real version was bombed to bits in Bremen during World War Two. In Bremen, what was it doing in Bremen? You know that is a very good question <laughs> that I do not have a good answer for. Wow. I th what I think happened was it was an exchange program between museums because they do Ooth. that. And that th this a, was this was that's back a hard when, loss. This was back when ah the Germans ain't gonna do anything. We taught them their lesson in World War One. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Oh god. And yeah. Yeah. And that painting that they were looking for, the Picasso, that really was destroyed because the Nazis are sore losers. Yeah, if there's anything we've we've learned over history is the Nazis don't like to lose. 
Well, it, it, what, a lot of that stuff was destroyed at their peak. Um, so there was some stuff from Salvador Dali, some stuff from Picasso. There was a lot of art pieces that were destroyed because it was considered degenerate art. Um, so, so they wanted to like wipe this stuff from, from the face of the earth and, uh, yeah, have, have the, what they consider to be the good classical art, uh, in the museum, um, you know, in, in what they considered the cradle of civilization. That's, uh, just, a another feather in the cap for why Nazis are bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> another feather. It's like, as if they needed one. Feathers. <laughs> Like yeah, they really needed help with that, but <laughs> but uh, I usually I, I like to take a, a small little reprieve in the middle of the show before we continue on with our our topics. I, I know I had mentioned it to you in our, our message, but we usually have some sort of beverage that we like to chat about that isn't our, our sponsor at all. Um, Jack, what, what are you drinking tonight? I'm glad you asked. I went to the liquor store earlier and got a bottle of Menage de Trois, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. I feel that's very that's very fancy for uh, for a bottom shelf wine, but I appreciate hey, the shut effort. Shut up. Um, oh yeah, when I was at the liquor store, there was another guy trying to buy a thirty rack of Keystone, but because of supply issues, the dude didn't have it, and I just turned to him and said. Jesus Christ, you don't have French wine, you don't have Keystone, you don't have any of the top shelf stuff. And he <laughs> thought that was pretty funny. But yeah, I, I tried to find some French wine to go along with this, but he just doesn't have it. Well, I imagine South Dakota is hardly the uh, epicenter up. of fine French wines. Shut up. But yeah, you're right. Um so yeah, I'm drinking some wine because this is a European movies, you know, a French movie. Also, I was I actually continue with the drinks talk. Oh, I was going to say, JD, do you have anything you're drinking tonight, or you uh, uh, keep keeping it simple? I, I'm I'm drinking a uh, a blue raspberry body armor. <laughs> you know what? That... Uh, picked up at the gas station on the way here. <laughs> You know what? Hydration is important. Yes. I'm surprised you. I'm surprised. Are you still a, a partner with Origin? Yes. I'm surprised you you didn't uh, do like a Rage Shadow Legends. Like I'm drinking Jocko Go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do I do drink those often. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's the old body armor this evening. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> I uh, I ordered a case of Jocko Go uh, a while back and. I wasn't entirely smart about it. Um, I went, <laughs> I went off the tried and true. Like, oh, this is the color of the can, so red must <laughs> taste tropical. Um, oh. And and apparently, nope. <laughs> no, it's not. It's uh, it's like coconut something. Yeah, um, it's kind of like it a... wasn't. It wasn't bad, but when you're expecting fruit punch and then you get coconut, it, it's it's a shock. It, it, yeah, it throws you through a loop. So since then, I've I've learned that when I order. Uh, any of Jocko's products to actually read the label and not just go off the pretty pictures. Yeah. The, uh, the pink lemonade is probably my, my favorite. Um, and, and the sour apple, Th those are both my favorite flavors of the, the old, uh, Jocko go. Which I will say Jocko is not a sponsor of the show, but he is a sponsor of JD. So 
<laughs> so at the end, at the end of the show, if you want to give your if you want to give your code for the Jocko products, have at it. Yeah, there you go. H- history history ten. Uh, get you ten percent off. There you go. It's it's almost like having a sponsor, but not really for us, anyways. <laughs> it's a it's a running joke we have is uh you know obviously we've only just begun, so we don't uh, we don't have anybody throwing money at us yet. So um, every every week we just we throw it out there that we're more than willing to take people's money, but uh, nobody's nobody's reached out to us yet, which is a shame. But... <laughs> I'll give it time. Yeah. But to for me tonight, um, I'm actually very fortunate. Uh, there's a microbrewery out on the East Coast called Hackensack Brewing Company. Um, I was able to acquire uh, one of their IPAs, and it's called, for the folks at home, you can't see it, but I'm, I'm showing it to JD and Jack. It's called Musket Haze, and uh, I, I got it because, you know, we're in the time frame of 4th of July. Um so it has a very Dude, beautiful like... that can is cool <laughs> it is um i wish they, people could see this they i'll i'll send a I'll, I'll put a picture of it up on our instagram but they partnered with an artist i believe it's you know I'll, I'll i'm not even going to attempt to say his name because i'll probably screw it up i will also share that to our instagram the the artist that they partnered with to do the the label for the can but it's a beautiful a painting of some revolutionary militiamen uh, fighting some redcoats. Um, but he does he does a bunch of other paintings. He does a lot of commission work. Also, I'm a I've been following him for a long time. Um, so yeah, I will share both the the can because it's a good looking can, and I will also share that artist because art is good. Yeah, that thing's cool. But yeah, I'm drinking Musket Haze IPA today. So I know this is really, this is circling way, way back, but uh, what did we think about the, the portrayal of, you know, it was only a moment, but I re- what did we think about the portrayal of Herman Goring in this film? Uh, it's uh, bad. <laughs> 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 I mean, his his uniform is a mess. Um, yeah, the, the, that was, um, yeah, that that was something that really One... kind of took me out of the moment. Is when they had Goering, you know, looking at the art. I was like, oh, this that that was actually a a pretty. I find it bad. interesting because as you look at films over the different decades, Herman Goring has been portrayed in honestly kind of a a wide range of ways like Mm -hmm. it's you know like hitler is generally portrayed almost relatively within the same body type and image like they usually get are able to find actors that are approximately close to what he looked like but herman goring in film is you get a lot of variation to it um and i would agree with you the the uniform was was silly in this instance but um, the thing I truly appreciate, and I'm not here to to fat shame, uh, but I really love the fact that they made Herman Goring fat in this film. Because um, <laughs> mm-hmm. one, you know, piss on him. And two, yeah. um, uh, one of my favorite stories from World War II is actually 
um i forgot the title of the book but it's by alex kershaw and uh, one of his books that he wrote was about the american volunteer squadron that flew for the british during the battle of britain oh okay um anyways there's a side story in that book that talks about at the time of battle britain they were moving up from one model of the me 109 to the next and they were basically doing you know showing it off to herman goring because you know he's the the leader of the luftwaffe yeah and so they are showing off the newest model of the me 109 to goring and i you, you know he he was a World War One ace and was a pilot himself, but by the time World War II happened, he was a very, very large individual. And my favorite, <laughs> my favorite thing of all time in reading this book, and it's one of my top five stories of World War II, is they're like, hey, you want to hop into the cockpit? And he's like, sure. And so he, and I don't know if anybody's ever seen a 109 in person, but it is, as far as fighter planes go, it is a small fighter plane. It is, <laughs> it is small. And so he hops up on the wing and he, you know, climbs on into the cockpit and he lowers himself down. And it's literally like, you know, fat man in a little coat syndrome. He couldn't like, <laughs> he couldn't lower himself below the waist level into this fighter plane. And apparently it was supposed to be like a super embarrassing moment for him because, you know, <laughs> here's this guy who was an ace of the first world war and head of the Luftwaffe and can't even fit into a, an airplane. <laughs> You know, uh, last, I guess it would have been last October, um, I had a chance to go to uh, Birch's Garden down in, in Bavaria uh, with Eric Dorr from the Gettysburg Museum of History, and we were filming a whole bunch of content down there. Uh, but uh, there, there's a, it was an incomplete train tunnel that was right there, very close to the train station in Birch's Garden. And um, there at the end of the war, uh, they, they found a train that had been backed up into this train tunnel and it was just pack loaded with, you know, some of his stolen art. Um, and then very close to Birch's Garden, the 101st Airborne set up a spot where they, they basically set up an art gallery for soldiers to come and kind of tour through and, and look at, uh, you know, all of this art that, that Goering had amassed for himself. Um, but yeah, he, he was he was a man of uh, extreme indulgences. Uh, you know, he wanted all the art, he wanted all the food, he wanted all the liquor. Uh, yeah, and have you? Uh, I know I know you've done a significant amount of traveling. Uh, um, have you ever had the opportunity to see Goering's uh, aircraft collection? No, no, I can't Are, say that I have. Were you were you aware of its existence? No, I not until just this moment. <laughs> oh, so the the next time you find yourself uh, overseas again in Poland, um, I can't remember exactly where it might be Warsaw, but I might be wrong on it. I, I know at least country wise, it is in Poland. Okay. Um, Hermann Goering, aside from art, one of the things he loved collecting was he actually amassed the largest well at that time i think peter jackson peter jackson now currently holds the record but uh he amassed the largest collection of world war one aircraft in private really hands. um so peter jackson currently holds that record but they're mostly reproductions so if you go to poland um 
a lot quite a bit of his collection was destroyed but the largest collection of original world war one aircraft exists in that country and is because Hermann goring was you know he's like living in the glory days it's like i was a world war one ace so if if you want to see a fantastic collection of original world war one aircraft um it is the the Hermann goring collection i'll be dead gum I, that's the first i'd ever heard of that yeah it's you know it and the thing is you know just like any part of history it is amazing how many little things like that kind of just slip by or you you don't really think about yeah because obviously when we talk about herman goring we we talk about his part uh you know in the nazi regime and the atrocities that he helped perpetrate but then there's also these other parts that are like yeah he was a terrible person but you know at least this one little aspect of him was was helpful to you know history at least and i know <laughs> i want to come i want this to be plainly stated i am not a herman goering fan like i said <laughs> i was very happy with the portrayal of him being a fat dude so like, <laughs> i I'm, I'm going to shut up now i i, I <laughs> before you get not, canceled along with me <laughs> nazi's bad okay that is <laughs> the right, official good. position all of right, the show that's all, nazi's bad. Bad. that's all we needed to hear this this is this is the qualifier that I have to make in like every single episode that I put on my channel that well, has to do with Nazis. Well, yeah, it you know there is a vast difference between having an interest and you know wanting to learn because it is an interesting topic versus yeah. quote unquote liking it. Yeah, and that that there is a very strong line between those. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> but not not everybody is able to uh, uh, delineate between the two. <laughs> yeah, it's sometimes so it's, it's just it's, easier to to yell yeah. at each other. It's 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 a stupid time to be alive. <laughs> but um, I know we've talked about um, many different aspects of this film, and there's been some scenes that uh, you know we've already discussed. Uh, aside from the stuff that we've discussed up to this point, was there any particular scene or moment that really stuck out to either one of you? So, um, that scene and the scenes following where he meets and talks with that one French art chick, what, was there a reason she was being such a bitch to him? Like, I know the whole stereotype of French people are rude. And I know that she was suspicious of him for because she thought he wanted to take the art all for himself, but that could have just been resolved with a simple no, we're trying to get it back. And he doesn't really do that. He's mysterious about it when they first talk about it. I think I think that had to have just been a uh, we're feeding into the, the the French stereotypes. I also love the fact that Kate Blanchett is like Will you stop speaking French? It's terrible. And it's like, your French is terrible in this movie, too. Yeah, like three different French people tell him that. I love that. Like, every time, like, you can see the and, movie is trying to make that attempt. Like, hey, just in case you forgot, we're in France and people speak French here. But then they which, are like, just speak English. It's easier. It's like, okay. like Which is an interesting cultural note, because in a lot of cultures when they hear someone at least trying to speak their language, they're flattered or at the very least endeared by it. 
but then they offer to speak in English if they know it to make it easier on the person. But no, in France, they'll straight up roast you, apparently. Uh, my, well, I, my experience in France has, has honestly been quite positive. Uh, I, I know there's, there's a, you know, that French stereotype, but especially if you get like out into Normandy, man, those have been some of the nicest people and some of the most appreciative wow. of, of, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the American contribution during, during world war two. Uh, yeah, I've, I've not, I've not had that experience at all. And I, I've been to France, uh, five or six times now. Um, and, and my, my experience has, has been positive. Um, you know, each time I've gone. I, I assume there were less Germans than when your grandpa went to France. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know. Aren't they yeah. all but, part of the EU now or something? You know, uh, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So but, I anyway. mean, and, and that, you know, that goes Open for borders. Germany too. My, my experiences in Germany have, have been excellent. Um, I know my, yeah. my dad was a active duty air force and uh, one of his favorite countries to visit was was Germany. He's probably in the course of his career. He was probably there like two dozen times. And he, like anytime you know, we took uh, over. Me and my wife we took an overseas trip uh, like a month or two ago, and you know, it was just a uh, you know, we went to Mexico for a week, and immediately you could see he's like, man, I wish I could go back to Germany. I'm like, not on the same topic, but I appreciate the. Uh, the enthusiasm dad but i've i've always had this dream i'm like one of these days i'll i'll surprise him with like a rhine river cruise or something <laughs> my dad was a rancher <laughs> is a rancher his father before him but uh jd was there any other scenes to you that really stuck out the, the the one that that just pops out in my head and, and that I think is is probably the best line in the movie I, I think it's the one that, that you all just referenced where uh, Matt Damon came comes up to, to Kate Blanchett's character and and she you know comments on you know he says you know please stop speaking French or, or whatever it is uh, that is you, that you're speaking and uh, Matt Damon replies well if it weren't for us you would be speaking German and and her reply is uh no if it was not for you i might be dead but i would still be speaking french yeah i, I, I love that line i i love the the delivery of it and and i love the spirit of it as well um in, very, in the united very states very defiant yes there there's a, a defiance to it that i i think is the best line in the movie um, <laughs> but the, uh, americans tend to have and, and i've i've been a part of this too um you know kind of poking at the at the french uh for you know uh decades their, yeah for, for for their um capitulation uh against the the germans you know early in the war um there, there's a there's a lot of context uh that's involved there this is a country that had been devastated by the first world war. Um, and you know, it wasn't just France, uh, the, the German war machine was rolling over everybody, but, but there, there's, there was a resistance, um, 
among the the French people, even throughout the the Nazi occupation, and and they were uh, very much a part of of defeating you know this this evil menace in in Europe, right along with the Americans and the British and the Canadians and the Polish and you know all all of these other groups uh, that they, they all played a role. And uh, I, I I don't know I, I love that line. No, it, it was definitely you know a good it's line, one of yes. It was a good line, and also, um, you know, it's one of the the few moments in this film that is, it's delivered well. Yeah. One moment that uh, that stuck out to me was when they landed on the the beaches of Normandy in this movie, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but be struck. Like it, it was irksome to me because. You see the equipment like around like we get we get the Higgins boat dropping them off. We see, you know, crates and trucks around the beach. But it is bar none. If you go back and watch that scene, they are literally the only people on that beach. And you it's just frustrating as somebody who like, you know, studied history. You you would have you would have to know at this time that this is probably one of the busiest beaches or ports in the world at the time yeah and the like it was just it's it's like i was complaining in gettysburg where there's seen like one of the largest battles in north american history and we have birds chirping in the background it's like why is this scene so empty why couldn't we hire like two dozen extras just to mill about (laughs) (laughs) because i think and you know i we haven't done Saving Private Ryan yet, but that is a there's a scene in Saving Private Ryan that demonstrates that very well, where it's like a couple of days after the invasion has occurred, and they're they're on the top of the bluff, and it looks down over the beach, and you just see thousands of ships, and the yeah. beach is just packed with trucks and people and all this stuff, and it's like it's it's a small thing, but it's like I wanted that in that moment, and granted, yeah. it it wouldn't have progress the story any which way but it was it was something that threw me out of the movie for a moment so yeah that's it's it's, it's one of the the many little things that add up to uh just just a little bit of a miss um you know in in the big scheme of things right so but still still worthy of watching though oh mm-hmm. absolutely i agree i, I think I think the topic alone makes this movie worth watching, even if there are elements that kind of miss the mark or moments that fall flat. I think just the topic is is worth making this a watch. And I, you know, like we talked about earlier, this is a war movie that you can show to your family and can have discussions about the war with your family in kind of an appropriate sense and it it doesn't detract from the topic yeah yeah i i would agree i would agree with that wholeheartedly but so i know you you brought it up right at the beginning with the 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 (laughs) thermometer rating um but right about this time or this moment we what we generally do is we come up with a custom rating we give it a rating and then we see how it stacks up um we know what the 
the critic rating for this is at least we still have the audience rating to uh leave us unswayed if you will so with the knowledge that we know well jack has the exact number for the uh audience or the audience of critic rating but i think it's time we come up with our our custom rating uh last week with gettysburg we did it on a scale of one to five charges um i'm open to suggestions as to what this week's rating would be whether it's burnt paintings i was gonna say a scale of one to five torched picassos (laughs) you know what that if that works for everybody else i think one to five torch picassos works for me (laughs) so jack would you like to uh give your rating first i'm gonna give it a i'm gonna give it a two Torched Picasso's and one medium rare Picasso. Just singed around the edges? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. a great topic, don't get me wrong. I love lost media and art and whatnot. And I felt like this movie was the good a good marriage between my love of war movies and my passion for lost media and art. But yes. It, it, it was not without its shortcomings. Okay. No, I JD. will not elaborate. Okay. Yeah, I, JD, I, on a scale of one to five burnt Picassos. I, I'd give it a three. Yeah. A it's, three? You know, worse than the best and better than the rest. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's worthy of watching just to connect you with, you know, some some unknown history. It's it's not unwatchable, but but it does have its problems. Fair enough. For me, I I think I'm going to agree with you, JD. I would give this a... I, I think I might alter it a little bit. I think this is two torched Picassos and then just the frame of a Picasso. So <laughs> two and a half-ish. <laughs> Brutal. So, so the, paint, the painting got torched, but the frame is fine. Which... Um, Compared to what the Russians said, we can. Oh, the the frames are useless. So you can replace the frames. Oh my, oh my goodness! I can't believe we never even got around to talking about the the Russian aspect of this film. Yeah, and yeah, which is non-existent <laughs> so, in real life. It, it, that, if, that was a non-issue. Yeah, if you guys don't mind, I, I I would love to take just like three to four minutes talking about the Russians because I think this is it's one of those interesting topics because. I think it's very rarely in a World War II film where we see a transition, like obviously it's a bit overplayed in this sense, but I think it's very rarely we see in a World War II film where the enemy is transitioned from the Germans to the Russians, even though like at this time they're still our allies, but you can see the writing on the wall that we're gearing up to have them as our enemies in the future. I I, I found that element very interesting to be added in there because it's not something we usually see yeah so at the at the end of the movie they they depict you know that there there's this race uh to get the art out of a place called uh Altau Sea, uh which is in austria and a lot of people know that you know in the post-war world germany was going to be divided up into four occupation zones between the soviets the americans the british and the french 
what a lot of people don't know is that Austria was undergoing the the same division. Uh, it was divided up into four different occupation zones, and just in the same way that Berlin was divided up into four different zones, uh, Vienna was divided up into four different zones. Where Altau C uh, is at is nowhere near the Russian zone. Uh, it, it, was, it, was solid, it was solidly in the American zone. There was no threat of, of the Russians, uh, you know, going and, and taking it over and getting the art. So, uh, yeah, that, that was another thing where it was just kind of like drama for drama's sake that they, they kind of shoehorned in there. Yeah, I, I was I was even thinking as I watched it, there's no way this happened in real life. And if this did happen in real life, it was nowhere near as close. Yeah. Uh, they just wanted that last nail biter. They did. Um, and I love the fact that the one of the big moments of like deterrence to the Russians was like the worst roadblock in the history of roadblocks. It was like a singular burnt out Jeep on a road. Same. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was, it was they, the frame. They just like flipped it over. Yeah, they really didn't need 10 people to do that. I could have done that with like three of my four of my friends. But <laughs> I, I will say I again, it's one of those moments that even if it in that instance, it wasn't true. I think it is an interesting thing just to bring up that, you know, there's so much that goes on in the story of World War II that, um, you know, we usually kind of divorce the topic of the Cold War and World War II, when in reality, there, I don't want to say it's a continuation of the same conflict, but in a way, it, it kind of is. Yeah. But we got off topic. We did. Um, uh, Rotten Tomatoes you... rating. So... The critics give this uh, 31% and the audience score is a 44%. Even the, the audience wasn't uh, yeah, they they wowed by this. <laughs> I mean, granted, we weren't we weren't too much higher than the audience score, but we were still more generous to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would give it if, if I had to give it a percentage, I, I would put it in the low 70s. I think the audience is right on this one, as as per usual for me. However, <laughs> the last episode, I kind of sided with the critics on. I think a good way of framing this movie, at least as a person who consumes it, is... Uh, I don't know how you guys watched it, but I watched it on Hulu because that's uh, one, of the place you, it's one of the places you can currently stream it. Um. Hulu added Monuments Men to their catalog, I want to say like two or three months ago. I, I might be a little off on that, but it's been around for a solid minute on Hulu. And I remember the first day that I saw it on the like suggested for you page uh, of Hulu, I immediately I added it to my my watch list, you know, the save it for later thing. And I added it to my watch list and then I never got around to watching it again until it was chosen for this episode. Um, and I think that's kind of indicative of how a lot of people would feel about this film, which is it is worth me adding it to my cart. It, it's like adding it to my Amazon wishlist cart, but I'm never actually going to buy it. Yeah. Um, hope, hope that somebody gets it for you for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm not going to be mad about it, but I, I'm not going to go out of my way to get it myself either, you know, yeah. which is, it, it's a shame. It's, it's not a bad movie. It's not a great movie, but it's um, a movie. It of is, course, I yeah. say that a lot on this podcast. You say that almost every episode. It is, it is a movie and it is worth at, at minimum one watch. I don't know. And I would even say it is worth a rewatch, but I couldn't give you a time frame in which <laughs> you should rewatch it. Because <laughs> my my record now is I saw it in theaters and then I waited like ten years to rewatch it. So, <laughs> so it's not a bad movie. It, yeah, it's, it's it's worth giving a shot, but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect too much from it if you have not seen it before. Yeah, that's all the thoughts I have on the matter. Yeah. So, at this time, are you? Hey. So, at this time, I'd love to give you the floor, JD. I know you're a busy, busy guy. Um, Got your fingers in a lot of (laughs) pots, pies, what, what have you. Lots of projects, so... The floor is yours to uh, give us any and all of your pages, channels, uh, any projects you'd like to push that are coming up. And if you want to uh, push your code for Jocko products again, uh, <laughs> have at it. All right, sure. Yeah, so uh, the, the channel on YouTube is The History Underground. Uh, and there's basically two primary shows underneath that umbrella. One's History Traveler going around to different historical sites around the world. Another one is American Artifact, uh, just looking at some of the artifacts of history and how they connect us to the past. Uh, so, yeah, if you're if you're into uh, history and learning new things and travel and stuff like that, well, then, uh, yeah, give it a look. And maybe if you watch a few episodes and it, uh, you know, catches your, your attention, uh, maybe, maybe subscribe. And, yeah, got a lot of stuff coming up here. In, in the near future, going to be uh, diving into some World War One content finally uh, that I'm pretty excited about. I, yeah, and uh, and the history and the uh, history ten is the code if you want to get some discount stuff at Origin or uh, Jocko Fuel. Sounds good, and uh, can't wait for that World War One content. I know uh, you've done some really great stuff as far as the the Normandy videos and the. Uh, and your civil war videos as well were thank were you very excellent and uh i i feel like this was a, a good episode to have you on with because you know obviously this was a very object focused movie and uh with the videos you do with eric door it's it's very fitting um so yeah it was it was great having you on uh for our end of it we'll plug our stuff for a moment um you can find us on instagram and facebook at the armchair commanders podcast give us a follow if you like this episode give jd a follow um if you like this episode leave us a review the stars do matter um what am i oh if you are on youtube and give jd a follow also Mm -hmm. head on over to history apprentice which is our youtube channel where you can find our episodes i know it doesn't make a lot of sense that our podcast has a different name from our youtube channel but that's just the way the cookie crumbles so Mm -hmm. get over Um, it (laughs) 
Um, so with that being said, it is about time to pick our next film. Jack, it is your turn. What great uh, film are we going to be doing next week? Shit, I kind of forgot that it was my turn to check. Uh, War Horse. War Horse? Yes, final answer. Uh, World War One content. You know what? I'll, I dig it. It'll be our first World War One film, and I've never seen War Horse, so... I mean, it was either that or All Quiet on the Western Front, and that's on the list like three times for the three different versions that were made. So let me get this straight. Between War Horse and the critically acclaimed or the critically acclaimed or the critically acclaimed version <coughs> of All okay, Quiet on the Western okay, Front. Okay, two of them were critically acclaimed, acclaimed, acclaimed. The 70s version wasn't as critically acclaimed but if i had to pick one version it would be the 1930 version of all okay. quiet on the western front i just you know what this no judgment war horse it is no no actually it's going to be all quiet on the western front now that i say it out loud the 1930 version because i'd rather watch that personally did I, I hope my making fun of you didn't sway your choice. No, no, I was kind of on the, in the mood to watch either one of those movies. All right. Fun fact, and, I've, I've never seen the 1930s version. I've seen the 70s oh, and the uh, recent version of All Quiet. I, so. I think the 30s version is the only... If you're going to watch one version, make it the 30s version, personally. What do I know? Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, with that being said, we've greatly enjoyed having you on, JD. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I had fun. And uh, for everybody who's listened, we've enjoyed having you join us. And until next week, I've been John. I'm Jack. And and you are? Oh, am I supposed to be saying something right now? Yeah, you can just say oh, I'm well, JD. Okay. Oh, I'm JD from History <laughs> Underground. Sorry. Yeah, we got you. <laughs> sorry about that that's all good. good i didn't really prep you for that so yeah we we really just dropped that on your lap <laughs> i should have done better i'm sorry oh shoot bye <coughs> bye